0: One of my favorite bands, and not the Grateful Dead, was Pink Floyd. The Wall, which was one of the best-known concept albums, which I think sold somewhere around 30 million copies, is the second best-selling album of Pink Floyd uh, behind The Dark Side of the Moon. And the best-selling double album of all time, and one of the best-selling albums of all time overall. A bassist, Roger Waters, conceived The Wall during Pink Floyd's 1977 in the Flesh Tour and modeling the character of Pink after himself and Pink Floyd's former songwriter, Sid Barrett. The Wall is a rock opera that explores abandonment and isolation symbolized by a wall. Pink is a depressed rock star, and he imagines a crowd of fans entering one of his concerts, and a flashback of his life up to that point begins. Now, in the flashback, it's revealed that the father was killed during World War II. Pink's mother raises him alone, and with the death of his father, Pink starts to build a metaphorical wall around himself. Now, growing older, Pink is tormented at school by abusive teachers and memories of these traumas, become metaphorical bricks in the wall. Now, as an adult, Pink remembers his oppressive and overprotective mother. Pink soon marries, and after more bricks are created through more trauma, he is preparing to complete his wall. Now, while touring in the United States, he is wanting casual sex with a woman to relieve the tedium of touring. Though in making a phone call home, he learns of his wife's infidelity, And he brings a groupie back to the hotel room only to trash it in a violent fit of rage, terrifying her out of the room. Now depressed, Pink thinks about his wife and feels trapped in his room. And he dismisses every traumatic experience he has ever had as even more bricks in the metaphorical wall while rejecting human contact and medication. Now Pink's wall is now finished, completely isolating himself, from the outside world. Immediately after the wall's completion, Pink questions his decisions and locks himself in the hotel room, beginning to feel depressed. Now, Pink turns to his possessions for comfort and yearns for the idea of reconnecting with his personal roots. Pink's mind flashes back to World War II with the people demanding that the soldiers return home. Now returning to the present, Pink's managers and roadies have busted into his hotel room where they find him unresponsive. Paramedic injects him with drugs to enable him to perform. Now the drugs kick in, resulting in a hallucinatory onstage performance where he believes that he is a fascist dictator and that his concert is a neo-Nazi rally at which he sets brown shirt-like men on fans that he considers unworthy. He proceeds to attack ethnic minorities and then holds a rally in suburban London, symbolizing his descent into insanity. Now, Pink's hallucinations then ceases, and he begs for everything to stop. Tormented with guilt, Pink places himself on trial for showing feelings of an almost human nature before his inner judge orders him to tear down the wall. And this is the opening of Pink to the outside world. Now, the album turns full circle, hinting at the cyclical nature of Water's theme and that the existential crisis at the heart of the album will never truly end. Now, The Wall is a fictional story, but has plenty of things that can be relatable to musicians. Substance abuse being one, being pushed to keep going when your body is exhausted and needs to stop now please stay tuned for our special guest ryan dusick who was the founding drummer for maroon 5 you don't want to miss this you mm-hmm. Hey, welcome back to high wall clean. My name's Eric McCoy. Hey, I want to remind everybody that we highly appreciate your support. So please just subscribe, like all those, those other things that are technological world asks of us, the music industry, mental health and substance abuse. And actually we could probably end the show. There any questions. (laughs) Uh, We've had numerous guests on the show and the most common career that we do see is, is a musician. And I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Ryan Dusick, who was the founding drummer of Maroon 5. Uh, they released their debut album, Songs About Jane in 2002. Uh, the album peaked. number six on the Billboard 200 chart, went quadruple platinum in 2005. Uh, in the same year, the band was won the Grammy Award for Best New Artist. Now, Ryan released a book, I guess last year, titled Harder to Breathe, and the story takes you on the journey of success, obviously the demands that come with it, as well as his struggles with anxiety and addiction after he left the band, and Ryan had a major struggle that he faced. He was a drummer and unable to drum due to nerve issues that he had, and, and Ryan, so thank I want to thank you for coming on our show. Thank you
1: so much for having me on. It's my pleasure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I was saying earlier, you know, before we got started, I mean, you got a very interesting story um, that you obviously had a job and potentially unable to perform the job um, and sort of forced out of the um, the industry. And I was thinking about this. I mean, I was just kind of trying to wrap my brain around, um, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm assuming that this was a big uh, dream of yours uh, to be a musician. And then to hit a place to where you were unable to do it and sort of forced out of it. Uh, how did that feel for you?
1: Well, you know, you have to remember, this was the band we started when I was 16 years old in my parents garage. And it was the original four members, Adam, Jesse, Mickey and myself. Uh, we worked for a decade to get to that point, you know, um, struggling and striving and doing everything in our power to make our dreams come true and finally they did. You know, finally we reached that the that summit that you dream of of being um, a headlining act and having a, a platinum record and winning Grammy Awards and all that stuff. Just as we were reaching the apex of that, I had to walk away from that career. Um, and it wasn't just walking away from career, it was really walking away from everything that had become my self definition. My entire identity was wrapped up in being. Not just a member of the band or the drummer in the band, but, you know, a part of that group of friends and creative team and the whole, you know, social world that was uh, centered around the band and those guys and um, everything that we'd worked for, for, uh, since we were teenagers in high school, dreaming of that to the point where we were at. So it was devastating. It was heartbreaking. It really knocked me down to my core, just feeling really defeated, feeling like a failure um i went through i think a grieving process you know going through the stages of grief to deal with um that loss of identity it was i was really depressed uh i started self-medicating more and more um and it was it was but it was a process i had to go through it was something that that took time for me to find closure
0: Mm. and how was the and obviously somebody took your place in the band. Mm-hmm. And uh, how was the band for you? I mean, were they a lot of support for you? Uh, the, I
1: mean, they were supportive. Absolutely. And I suppose, you know, when you hear about the stories about bands breaking up or somebody leaving a band, it's usually this horrible thing, you know, and it wasn't that, um, right. but it was, I think there were a lot of subtleties to it. A lot of nuances. I think, you know, we were all in our twenties, so you can imagine the level of emotional, um, I don't want to say maturity, but just, you know, the ability, the pres- emotional presence, ability to really be there for somebody else. I don't. I think it was a difficult situation that nobody really knew how to deal with, mm-hmm. let alone me, myself going through it. I, I couldn't even like express my feelings to anyone or, or let alone ask for help or anything. So how could your friends really truly be there if you're not opening up to them? So it was complicated, but we were able to stay friends and, and in time um, become closer again. But it, it, we went through a really difficult time, and you can imagine also for me, you know, just even going to uh, events where all those guys were at, or going to shows, was mm-hmm. deeply triggering for me because that was where like my trauma was, you know. And it was I would want to go and 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 participate in their lives and have fun the way we used to, but it would start out that way, but it would end up with me, you know, basically wasted and and in the fetal position crying by the end of the night, you know. So mm-hmm. it was like it was a uh, it was complicated to say the least yeah are you able to drum now at all or currently it's it's not easy um i've gone through different sort of cycles with drumming it that's the one place in my life everything else has, has really turned a corner and been really positive and um i've I'm in a place of purpose and meaning and fulfillment in my life and doing what i'm doing now but the drums and music uh were you know once my greatest passion but also my greatest pain mm-hmm. um so i carry some of that baggage with me even though i've done my best to work through it and the kind of therapies that i've done but um it's interesting you know the psychology involved with this stuff because i you know i i couldn't play the drums anymore i had legitimate physical issues uh but really now that i look back on it um it was something we you call uh musician's dystonia or focal dystonia, which means that your body you've put it through, through so through so much stress doing something repetitive under high pressure circumstance that it finally just says like you can't do this anymore. And it you develop like a, a reflex to it where you can't mm. you can't do that uh, action anymore. And actually when I quit drinking, that improved to a certain extent. Um I was playing about as well as I had in a decade a few years ago. Um, but then I I don't know, I had certain situations where I imagined like performing again or playing with the guys again, and then that thing got worse again. So it's like it's kind of a trauma yeah. response, you know, and again, that's like the one area where I still carry you know some of that baggage. I'm just being honest about it because yeah. you know that's
0: what I'm here to do. No, absolutely. So now you're a therapist. So obviously when all that happened, so you, so I want to I go back for a second again, due to all those demands of being a musician and show after show after show, probably, and being pushed, pushed to a level of insanity in a sense.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of look at it as it was, what happened was the intersection of a lot of internal pressure that I put on myself with the growing external pressure of success and all the demands that came with it. Um, because I was a, I was a high achieving kid growing up and, uh, and you know, excelled in a lot of things that I applied myself to. Uh, and weirdly enough, I mean, I didn't get a lot of external pressure from my parents. Like you have to perform, you have to do, you have to achieve, but Mm -hmm. I put a lot of pressure on myself. I held myself to a really high standard. I I became very perfectionistic, um, that, you know, I could be self-critical. I could be, um. I I even became a sort of obsessive compulsive about certain things. And that played out a little bit in terms of my uh, intensity with the drums. Um, And so I I had this predisposition, I think, for some of the internal pressure, uh, as well as anxiety, which was it's something I think that runs in my family. um, But for me, it manifested in some different ways, at different points in my life. But it wasn't until I was we were in the midst of this huge campaign this of, you know, for world domination as a band mm. and touring all over the world. And you, you combine uh, the kind of intensity I had as a person and the anxiety and the, and the pressure I put on myself with now having to perform night after night on bigger and bigger stages, um, one tour after another. I mean, it was relentless. I mean, there was just no um, end to it for basically four years of our life on that album. Um, and it wasn't something that happened one day or one night. It just built up over time. And really what it was, was my whole constitution really kind of breaking down. I, I look at it as a, a nervous breakdown, just like my nervous system gave out on me. That's not a, a, a clinical term, but it's it's just a good way of of sort of describing, you know, just the buildup of the, of the pressure and the stress, and then eventually the breakdown that occurred. I read somewhere that you wanted to be a baseball player. Is that... Yeah. Is that true? Yeah, that was one of my first dreams and and passions. I I was a pretty good pitcher when I was 12 in Little League. We won the championship and all that. And I had dreams of pitching for the Dodgers growing up in L.A. And (laughs) um, and I I think in some ways it could have been realistic. I was I was definitely excelling in that. Uh, But I ended up with arm problems in high school. Um, And I and same almost it really mirrors kind of what happened with the drums, what happened with me with baseball in high school. That's why I put it in my book, Harder to Breathe, because um, I mean, baseball is neither here nor there for if you're a fan of Maroon 5, but it's kind of sets up the story because you see what I dealt with on a smaller scale with baseball uh, as a teenager, it kind of comes it it foreshadows, you know, what comes later with the with the band and on
0: the road on a much bigger scale. So, OK, so now let's go back now. So now you're a therapist. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and that's pretty cool. I'm actually a, a, I work in the substance abuse field myself. Um, I'm a counselor. I've been doing it for 20 something years. And, um, and so you decided to go to school obviously after you left. How, and a question, how long did it take you for you to finally let go of, and how did you do that? How did you let go of that?
1: Well, it was tough. You know, I, I spent about 10 years in my, you know, pattern of addiction, um, self-medicating and, and trying to make the painful feelings go away or escape them or avoid them and all the things we do, uh, which of course worked for a night or two and then made it worse. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it got worse over time. And at the end of it, you know, I'd gotten to a place where my anxiety was at the worst it had ever been in my life. I was really depressed and isolated and physically it was taking a toll on me, all the drinking and everything. And, um, you know, kind of hit a spiritual bottom um, where i just realized that i wanted to rejoin the living you know i didn't I, the way that i was going it was just going to keep getting worse until i died mm-hmm. um so if i wanted to you know live uh, a life that was at all fulfilling i needed to start walking in the other direction mm-hmm. uh it was humbling extremely humbling to get to that point uh, feeling so low and i started out at the betty ford center out in uh, the desert down here in southern california and it, it, what what happened for me was early in recovery, even when I was still dealing with intense anxiety and coming off of both the alcohol and and some medication that I was on, uh, that was just left my my nerves completely frayed. Um, I, I discovered service, you know, as a way um, to counteract that. It was a powerful thing to realize that even like two weeks into my stay in rehab that I had something to offer another human being that was helpful and meaningful, you know, Mm -hmm. just somebody's doing worse than I am. That's, you know, shaking like a leaf, walking in those doors and I can help them with their bag and show them to their room and acclimate them to the process that we're all going through realizing that somebody had done that for me two weeks earlier and that it had helped me. And I felt more comfortable after they did that. And, and so that was just like a light switch went on for me realizing You know, all of the things I'd been doing to avoid my my problems um, had also kept me from realizing that I had the ability to be to have connections like that in 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 the world to people and to and to life. Um, And it just was just felt more meaningful than anything I'd been doing in my addiction for years. So I kind of just followed that feeling. Um, Once I was out of rehab, I I was at a at an IOP, an, an intensive outpatient program, for a little while um, where I volunteered for two years after I finished that program. And I was just, you know, helping people that were getting started, uh, in recovery, offering support, you know, listening to them, telling them my story. And it was just so meaningful and fulfilling to do that. And I was getting a lot of positive feedback, uh, in terms of my ability to be, you know, to articulate the ideas of recovery, but also to be empathic with, with the newcomers that, um, it just started to seem like it's a no-brainer to do this at a higher level. Something, find a career in it. Uh, if it's already something I'm volunteering to do, and I have the you know educational background to go back to school and get a degree, like this could be something great. So I did that, and I applied, and I just kind of did the next indicated action, which was going back to school to get a master's degree in clinical psychology, thinking I would probably just do what you're doing, you know, going and becoming a drug counselor or Working at a recovery center, but you know it kind of opened up my horizons, and I found a lot of different areas that I could see myself working in. So I'm not working specifically in the addiction recovery world, but I am working with people that are struggling with anxiety, depression, trauma, and of course, substance use or abuse comes into all of that. Um, you know, with with a number of my clients, so it all kind of comes together in what I'm doing now. And being a therapist, um, I bring everything that I've learned personally in my life into the work that I do.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Now, did you, um, were you doing a lot of drinking when you were in the band or was it mostly afterwards? And were you doing drugs too, or was it just alcohol? I don't say just alcohol, but. Well,
1: it was kind of like this. Um, I was actually kind of late to the ball game. I, I was a good kid who didn't mess around too much. I took my parents' advice to stay away from drugs and alcohol as a teenager. Uh, in my twenties, I started drinking recreationally and it was at, you know, the early stages, the romantic stages of, of alcoholism where it was all just fun. It was just Mm -hmm. something to facilitate the good times, get out of my head and not be so anxious and self-conscious. Uh, and it worked for that time. And then I took that onto the road with me. And during that time I did drink, uh, not to the point that I would say that it was totally toxic. I mean, I, I would say, you know, I would tie one on when we had a night off or um, I don't really remember being drunk on stage or hung over on stage very much. Um, but that being said, I can look back and say it wasn't necessarily the, the best coping mechanism because the amount of stress that we were under and the amount of toll that it was taking on my mind and body, um, you're then just putting that much more stress on your mind and body by putting that toxin in you as a way to just check out. So it, it probably made things worse, but it didn't really escalate to the point of being full-on um, you know, a real problem till you know I lost the thing that had been my self-definition and fell into this space that felt like a deep void. Um, and for the first time, drinking became a way to escape, not to facilitate good times, but to um to medicate to to numb out completely or to to seek oblivion you know and um that's when it got really bad for me and it it took it escalated pretty rapidly after i left the band but i went through all the stages of of addiction where you know i i i convinced myself that i had it under control you know and kind of went through that little phase of um feeling like i was getting my shit together
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah <laughs> that, that if i just you know drank like a gentleman and all that stuff uh of course that our, hats helped... are off. So our hats are
0: off to you <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh yeah no there were some other drugs involved I, I i tried all the little games in the insanity of addiction at a certain point i added pills to try to curb the drinking right
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> going to my my psychiatrist talking about my anxiety and uh, doing that little dance between the medication and the self medication. Of course it all just made it worse in time. And, and it it escalated and became an even more complicated problem.
0: Um, so you got this book out and, uh, um, so what's the premise of it?
1: Well, this book harder to breathe. I, it was something that I, I toyed with the idea of writing probably 10 years earlier when I was still in the depths of my suffering Um, actually somebody even approached me and wanting to maybe co-write it or ghost write it for me. And at that time I said, no, for a couple of reasons. One, if I I was going to write a book, I was going to write it myself. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I had a degree in English from UCLA and I had always had a dream of writing novels. So I, I figured I'd write my own book. But also, I just, you know, I didn't see what the purpose would be at that time because I was, it was, I knew I had an interesting or unique story to tell in terms of the band. And it was sad the heart, and heartbreaking the way, ending the way that it did. But, you know, what would the purpose be? Just, just woe is me. This is what I had and this is what I lost. So I didn't write the book at that time. I was in no condition to. But when I was in grad school getting my degree in uh, in psychology, I, uh, I was in a really good place, really inspired and feeling... Like my education and my understanding, not just of of mental health and psychology, but also of myself and everything that I went through, was reaching a whole other level. And it just kind of came to me one day that I had this story to tell that now had a happy ending. You know, Mm -hmm. it was something that could actually be purposeful, not just for me in terms of sort of a a narrative therapy for me, but also um, to you know inspire other people that might need to hear this story of hope. In recovery so it just started coming out of me and it became like a mission and i realized i wanted to do the best i possibly could to be really honest and vulnerable in the writing of it and and that you know hopefully some people would relate to the things that i struggled with and if they can relate to the things i struggled with then hopefully they can relate to uh, my recovery
0: yeah i think of i mean you have a you have a powerful story but it's easily relatable you know, to anybody, I mean, it's substance abuse, mental health. It's, it is all about loss. I mean, it be loss of sanity, loss of meth. Meth was my killer in life. And I would say it was honestly my first true love in life. You know, yeah. it was one of those things I, I started young. It was always there. It was there to comfort me, you know, it was <laughs> never let me down, you know, kind of thing until eventually it did let me down. But, and and I think honestly that a lot of us deal with, we'll deal with that loss for the rest of our lives. The substance, you know, I, I, the choices I made, I lost my family. I lost my friends. I lost, you know, money. I lost my credit my, my health. And so the only way that I was able to gain the losses back was I had to let go of the thing that really meant something to me. Um, you had to let go of something, you know, that meant something really, you know, heavily to you for you to find your life.
1: Yeah, I I think I really had to mourn those losses, um, and 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 a lot of ways I think you know to get sober, you you have to go through a grieving phase with your substance, you know, because as the way you described it is is very accurate. It's it's like a it's like a, a one true love, you know, but it's a relationship that starts out romantic and it's meaningful to you and it's the answer to all of your prayers, um, and eventually over time that relationship becomes toxic. Yep. And just like any relationship that ends, you know, it, it, you still have those memories of the things that were that may have been um, your you're saving grace at one point in your life. Um, and you have to kind of mourn the loss of that because for better or for worse, it was a big part of your life for a yeah. long time, you know, yeah. and it's like, who am I? You you know, I mourn that identity, you know, that I lost as the drummer in Rune 5 and that whole thing. Um, but you, I think your identity as a drinker or, or a drug user, like that's wrapped up in your whole sense of yourself. Yeah. And so when you when you enter that new stage of recovery for a moment, there, it's kind of like, who am I? If I'm not that guy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I was, I was thinking about when you were saying that with your career, you know, you know, I've been in the substance abuse industry. There's two things I know how to sell dope and how to be a counselor. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what else I would do, you know, <laughs> if, I, if I lost that, right? Everybody gets clean and sober because of pain. Something painful happens, you know, for right. people to get clean and sober. Now, eventually that pain goes away, you know, and we have that part of the brain called the amygdala, which stores that emotional memory. Mm-hmm. Right? And so the cravings, you know, that a lot of people have always resorts back to like when I first did it, you know, the times when it was wonderful, you know, yeah. because that pain. You know, that's why we always say don't glorify or glamorize it because, you know, that sort of puts us back. And I was kind of curious on that with your music. Does that same similar idea apply with your music?
1: Well, I've come to a place where I think for the longest time while I was in my addiction, uh, my relationship to music was extremely complicated and it was hard for me to remember when music was um, pure and innocent, fun and inspiration and passion because it was wrapped up In so much pain and trauma for me, you know? Uh, So I think that, that I've been able to come to a place of closure on that chapter of my life enough to go back and recognize all of the good times. And, and I've been reliving them and I've really been cherishing them and realizing how special that time in my life was and how grateful I am to have been able to to participate in what we did because, it was a really magical thing. I mean, you kind of take it for granted a little bit when you're in the middle of it. You don't know it's the good old days when you're when you're living them, right? But, you know, we started this band and it was so it was just such an innocently uh inspiring tale of these guys in a garage at 15, 16 years old dreaming the biggest dreams you could possibly imagine and going out into the world and and actually achieving them. And and it, when people ask me like what do you miss about that? I don't I the first thing that comes to mind is not the success it's not the incredible famous people we met or the things we got to do at the end of of my time in the band as much as some of those things were wonderful it's the process that I miss you know it's the camaraderie between us and and the 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 magic that would happen when we were either playing together or writing together and something would break through and something would happen and we felt that that synergy you know uh, that's the stuff that I miss. That's like, you can't, you can't bottle that up. You can't create it and anticipate it. It's just something that happens every now and then for, if you're lucky enough to catch those moments either by yourself or with a collaborator of some kind or a group of friends. So that I'm just so grateful at this point in my life to have been able to been a part of that and to create that. Um, and I cherish those memories. They come with, at the same time, the pain of how it ended. Um, And there's definitely trauma from that, that I mentioned earlier, and I have to continue to work through that. It's part of, you know, the stuff that I carry with me, but, but it's just, I try to look at it as, but also from all that pain came all the things I've gained since then, you know, if it weren't for that, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. I wouldn't have these stories to tell and the ability to hopefully touch people and reach people that need to hear uh, a message that I have to offer.
0: Yeah. And you're probably, and I don't obviously know you, you know, on a personal standpoint, you're probably a fantastic person and everything. And, you know, I look at with my life with substance abuses, there's nothing I've ever done that makes me who I am, but it did help shape me. And I can say, I love who I am today, sure you know, and I wouldn't want to change anything. And I did a lot of horrible things and bad things, you know, but I would not want to change anything. You know, you had an experience that a lot of people will never have that opportunity, a lot of people dream of, <laughs> you know, and that will never yeah. find themselves, you know, and I'm sure that's kind of cool. Yeah.
1: yeah. I feel very fortunate and very blessed for everything that has happened in my life. Um, you know, I, I, the other thing I try to remind myself all the time and I talk about this with my clients is, you know, there are pros and cons to everything in life. Mm. And had I not had the problems I did as a drummer and continued to be the drummer in Rune 5, um, there would have been some big pros to living that lifestyle for another 5, 10, 20 years, whatever it would be. I'm sure I'd be a lot richer. I'm sure I would have had some more memories of incredible things we got to do, uh, but I'm sure that there also would have been some cons that I avoided <laughs> yeah. uh, in terms of, I mean, I just, I know even doing it at the level that we were doing it for a few years, the monotony of that. I mean, the touring and, and just playing the same songs over and over again and yeah. getting to that point where you're feeling like what, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. We're just kind of hashing out these these, these shows one after another. Uh, I know how th- that lifestyle is glamorous as it can seem, and as much of the perks that come with it. There are definitely downsides to it: the loss of your privacy, for instance. You know, and then just the the relationships. Would my relationships with the guys be the same if I had been in the band this whole time? I don't know. Maybe it would. Maybe it wouldn't. All I know is that um, my life, having gone the direction that it did, there are some big pros that I wouldn't have had otherwise, you know, and, uh, and yeah, I lost out maybe on some opportunities in terms of financially and otherwise, but, uh, you take the good with the bad and you try to look at, at, um, at the opportunities that life gives you, you know, the the Mm -hmm. pathways that open up to you. Um, and if you look at 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 them in that way and you're able to recognize something that is a gift, then you're always going to be grateful for, for wherever your life takes you.
0: Yeah. I personally, would say that comparatively to that life versus what you do today, you bring a lot more value to the world. You know, I mean, music, music's great and everything, (laughs) but I mean, what, and and I feel this way too, you know, that what I do and what you do, you know, I don't think, you know, I, I think the value that we bring is way above and beyond anything that you could ever bring with music, you know, by putting our hands out, by helping people and the feelings that that brings.
1: I agree. And I, and I say that a lot. And sometimes I have to kind of check myself because I do recognize that, you know, that album in particular songs about Jane that we made, um, touched a lot of people. And I still get people coming up to me or, you know, writing me on social media or whatever, talking about how special uh, that music was for them and going to see our show or whatever, how, how meaningful it was for them. So, you know, writing that music, recording it, putting it out into the world and playing, Uh, and performing definitely has a a meaningful impact on people. But the difference is that I'm helping people one-on-one or in groups, you know, speaking uh, in a really tangible way in terms of working through uh, issues that might really be the difference of life and death for some people. It might be the difference between, um, you know, really struggling and thriving in life. And so seeing those changes in people uh, up close and knowing that you can have that impact um i do think that I, it is even more meaningful and that for me the, the rewards are even greater you know in terms of just feeling like I, I mean i mean i'm in a different place in my life too i was in my 20s when i was doing that and of course uh, the validation of of having that success and stuff was meaningful now in my 40s you know what i'm putting out into the world what's is more meaningful to me uh than what i'm getting back
0: you know mm-hmm. yeah do you think the fame really played a lot into into stuff? Because I mean, you know, you being in your twenties, you guys hit big fame. Here's a whole shitload of money, you know, that you have. I don't even know if you had the ability to truly comprehend and understand how to manage finances, <laughs> which has you know destroys a lot of bands, but uh, and a lot of people. But do you think that played a lot? I mean, you know, here's a shitload of money, and then of course with all the demands that are put upon you, do you think that had a lot to do?
1: I don't think that the the money or the Fame contributed to my downfall in terms of the breakdown I had on the road. Certainly the pressure and the stress of all the demands on our time and energy month after month on the road, uh, that contributed to my breakdown. But I think that the, 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 the success that we had and everything that it became definitely was a detriment to me, a blessing and a curse, when I found myself with a whole lot of free time Uh, not a lot of responsibilities um, and now a a drinking problem and feeling really sorry for myself. You know, it's a, it's a position in life that we all dream of to be, to have enough wealth to not necessarily have to go get a day job. You know, that's what we all are hopefully working towards at some point in our life, getting to experience. And I was experiencing it at 28. So it sounds like a dream and in some ways it is, but when you're feeling absolutely broken inside, and uh don't have any responsibilities you have to live up to or or wake up and you know show up at a job um or i you know i have the i had the time to show up to family events and stuff and and plan out my month so that i could appear like i had my stuff together you know uh it was really it contributed i think to the extent to which i was wallowing and um you know just kind of it 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 enabled my ability to stay in that state of self-obsession and denial and and reliance and dependence on a on a substance to 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 moderate my emotions in any way so it was it was definitely detrimental in those ways
0: so let me ask you i always like to ask this question um you know if you were to send a you know give a message out to somebody who's struggling um who's really struggling what would you tell them
1: well i think the the <clears throat> the thing that we the mistake we do make sometimes as just as friends or family members of somebody who's struggling is to try to fix them right away, you know, to try to say, here's what you need to do. Give them advice or, cause that's like the last thing you want to hear And it's probably the most likely uh, most likely effect of that is defensiveness. Right. Mm-hmm. I think the first step is to come to someone from a place of uh, empathy and mm-hmm. compassion and to ask questions, to allow them to, to, express what it is that they're experiencing because what they're experiencing, you know, it, it it has to be so profoundly painful for you to be continuing to live that lifestyle. You know, I mean, when you watch a show, you know, it's amazing to me when I watch a show like intervention or something like that now, and you see these people that are in the midst of their, of their struggles and people are offering them help and they still can't accept it half the time. And you're like, what is wrong with you? You just want to shake them and just like, come on, man. Like, there's no reason why you have to continue to live this way. But it makes you remember just like how much you're stuck in this loop and how hard it is to see yourself getting out of it. And really, I think allowing someone to really express to you what it is that they're going through and have some compassion for it, what they're struggling with. Because it's not just a drug that they're struggling with, right? Like, that's the extreme that it gets to in terms of the dependence. But it, you're they're medicating something, some kind of trauma, some kind of pain, something deep down inside um, that is driving this. Um, so I, that's the first step for me is to is to really try to understand.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of the you know you get a lot of people in the industry that try to convince people that they're addicts or alcoholics, you know, and it's something that I'll never tell anybody because me saying it doesn't mean anything, you know. Kind of the principle too is the like motivational interviewing, you know, of, you know, helping people resolve that ambivalence, but it's about getting them to acknowledge the change that they need to make.
1: Yeah. I mean, reflective listening is a big part of motivational interviewing, right? And it's just like repeating back to someone. It's amazing how much that works. It's one of the first things I learned as a therapist It's like when all else fails, just repeat what the person said right back to them. And half the time they're, they're astonished because, and they're like, Oh my God, you get it. You know, because like no one takes the time to really understand what you're going through. And all we want a lot of the time is just to feel heard, seen, you know? And so sometimes just asking the right question or just saying, so what you're saying is that you feel this way because of this. And it's exactly what the person just said, but it's like, Oh my God, you understand you know, that's a powerful tool.
0: Yeah. 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 Sometimes. Yeah. They're not looking for an answer. Yeah. They just want that ear.
1: Yeah. Connection. That's the thing is that, you know, we all, we've heard that addiction is a, a disease is a spiritual malady, you know, and, and what's the opposite of that? It's connection, feeling connected to something outside of yourself, you know, addiction is so isolating. So when, even if it's just a human being that you feel understands you, know that's a spiritual connection that's feeling like oh my god there's something outside of this little world that i'm stuck in that has meaning you know and that's why it's so powerful to find a higher power of, of your own definition whatever that is but for me it was like connecting to people that are going through the same thing as me or people that have gone through the same thing as me and that i can see their their recovery as a possibility and so yeah, I mean, I, just any way that you can find a connection, something that, that brings like that spark, remembering that light, there's more to life than than this this hole that you're in.
0: Yeah, the story of hope that it, that it is possible. You know, you went through that and, and look at you today, you know, a fucking therapist. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, can you imagine that if you told me 10 years ago that I would be helping people? <laughs> I wouldn't believe you.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah it's absolutely crazy well hey man i want to really thank you for doing this yeah all right well hey i want to thank everybody for listening to another episode of high wall clean as i always like to say keep getting high but let's do it clean we'll see you soon thanks hey but we are not done yet this interview continued for our radio show on hot topics which is on johnny rock and roll radio this episode aired on march 11th and the topic of the radio show was negative self-talk, inner critic. And so let's continue on with that. Hey, I got a therapist who is going to join us briefly and uh, who just happens to be the founding drummer for Maroon 5. So we got Ryan Dusick here. And I thank you, Ryan, for helping us out. I want to tell our listeners that you can hear his amazing story of his rise to fame. Obviously, what goes up must come down. He was forced out of the music industry because of nerve problems and unable to perform his job, which was play the drums. So he lost his mind, found booze to comfort him, and then decided to seek happiness and enjoyment in life. Am I kind of on the right track?
1: Yeah, yes, basically. <laughs> uh,
0: and so he became a therapist and wrote a book to help others find it. Okay, so we have been talking about that critical voice, and I was curious on what that critical voice was telling you when you were going through all this stuff.
1: Well, I was uh, I was really hard on myself uh, as a kid growing up. Uh, nothing was ever good enough. you know. I, I had to excel and achieve, uh, and I, I put a lot of pressure on myself uh, to do that constantly. And so when you're on the road and performing night after night on bigger and bigger stages and the demands are getting greater externally, there was a moment when that internal pressure that I put on myself met up with that external pressure. And I think that what I started telling myself, and it can be, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, when you tell yourself the negative enough times, I was telling myself that I'm going to fail, you know, that uh, basically I can't hack it. I'm breaking down, uh, there's something defective in me, and I'm bound to be a failure. Um, Now, that was just a fear of mine, right? Of course, it wasn't reality. It was just a fear that I had, but I was obsessing about it and ruminating on it. And and telling myself more or less that that was what was going to happen, and I don't know, you know, if that was ultimately what what created the problem or if it was part of the problem. But certainly, if you tell yourself something enough times, you start to believe it, right? And the, yep. but the opposite is true, right? And if you tell yourself the positive thing enough times, you start to believe that as well. So it's really just a matter of replacing those negative uh, thoughts with positive ones, with affirmations, with yep. talking to yourself the way that you would. Um, your best friend or your loved one or, or your family member, um, if you were you know, trying to be supportive and helpful, you would never talk to them the, the way that we often talk to ourselves. Oh, you idiot. Why'd you do that? You know, oh, you're, you're going to screw this up. You would say, oh, that's all right. You're doing great. You know, keep going. You're going to overcome this. And so finding a way to, to talk to yourself in that way, to be your own cheerleader, it makes such a huge difference.
0: It does. And, you know, as I say, you know, our mind doesn't know the difference between what we tell it and things we experience you know, which is also why we can lie to ourselves over and over and start to believe our own lies. And it is one of the most common things that I see, you know, especially with a lot of the people that I work with is, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of people grow up in families too, where parents tell them those things, you're stupid, you'll never amount to nothing. Um, And they continue to hold on to these internal voices, you know, that just keep and, and positive affirmations are definitely something that I know is probably the best tool for overcoming those. Um, and is that something that you did a lot when you were kind of working through, through a lot of that stuff?
1: Yeah, I had to definitely change the way that I talked to myself. I think when I was in, uh, the years after I left the band and I was self-medicating and feeling really sorry for myself, um, any, anything that I could see as good in my life always came with, um, some harsh criticism. And, uh, but when I was able to, to, you know, quit drinking and start that whole new journey, um, I started to realize that, you know, the confidence that I once had and had lost um, was still there as long as I was treating myself kindly. You know, I had been treating myself so unkindly for so long that so it made sense that I was in, down in the dumps. But once I started treating myself with with more self-compassion, with more self-love, uh, and that and that has to do also also with self care. You know, mm-hmm. if you're putting poison in your body or you're you're really neglecting your basic needs in terms of diet and exercise and sleep and all those things, you're basically treating yourself without a lot of love, right? So you know, in every way, mind, body, and spirit, giving myself more love, giving myself that uh, that compassion that I needed, led to more confidence, and which led to me, you know, going out into the world and doing things that were more purposeful. And that gave me uh, more of a sense of meaning and and, uh, and fulfillment. So it all kind of feeds on itself and grows in the same way that you can be in a in a downward spiral. You know, as it continues to kind of just fester, you can create an upward spiral just yeah. by doing some nice things for yourself and treating yourself with kindness. It turns into more uh, positivity in your life.
0: Yeah. So now you're uh, you're completely clean and sober.
1: Yeah, almost seven years now.
0: Congratulations, man! Thank you. And, and you feel good.
1: I feel great. I mean, I, I wish obviously you say no regrets, That's you know, but I wish I could have a, that decade back when I was not feeling so great, but you live and you learn. And, and I'm in my forties now and I feel great. You know, I feel healthy. Um, I feel positive. I feel inspired to do a lot of things in my life. And I'm going out and just kind of doing the next indicated action every day, mm-hmm. taking, you know, allowing that to take me wherever life takes me. Um, and so, I feel wiser, you know, for having gone through all of that. Um and if I could go back and do it all again, I'd probably do some things differently, but it, I'm I'm using that that uh all of that growth and everything I've learned from it to uh to live this part of my life in the best way I know how and and pay it forward, you know, really just try to be of service to others that might need to hear some of the things that I've learned.
0: Yeah. And it feels good to see people succeed. You know?
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: That's why we do it, right? Sadly, you know, we lose some, but yeah. you know, especially with everything that's going on today, but it's those successes that keep us keep us moving forward.
1: Oh, my God. I mean, when I was in early recovery, uh, I was volunteering at a, at a recovery center for a couple of years before I went back to school to get my master's and become a therapist. And I was just, I mean, that was so inspiring to me. You know, where else do you get to see somebody, and not all of them, but some of them come in at the lowest point in their entire life. And in a matter of months, all of a sudden you see the light bulb go on yeah. yeah. and, and they're, they're seeing life in a different way. There's a positivity, there's a brightness and, and they're thinking more clearly They They look healthier. Their spirit has been rejuvenated and their relationships are improved. I mean, like everything is just gelling. Yeah. And when you see that happen, it's like, man, that is so magical. And it, and it inspires you to want to really be grateful for the ways in which, your own life can can have all those things, you know. I'm doing a lot of telling my story as much as I can, and and trying to be an advocate, you know, uh, both in terms of mental health and in addiction recovery. Um, you know, I, I just feel like what I've gained, um, and having whatever platform I have, given my background and 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 the what I'm doing now, uh, it's a it's both a passion and a responsibility. I think to to be of service in that way.
0: I want to thank you for doing this, man. I really really appreciate this.
1: Thanks a lot, man. I I really appreciate you having me on. It was uh, it was a good experience.